Gary Gallagher is the John Now, John L. Now III Professor in the History of the American Civil War and Director, John L. Now III Center for Civil War History. He is the editor of the Civil War America series and the Military Campaigns of the Civil War series at the University of North Carolina Press. He is co-editor of the American Civil War Classic series at the University of South Carolina Press and of the Littlefield History of the Civil War Era series at the University of North Carolina Press. Let me remind you there will be quest time for questions and answers uh, at the end of Gary's lecture, so uh, be ready for those. He would like a great discussion. I'd like to welcome Gary Gallagher. Thank you very much. We were talking earlier, and I had not realized that it's hard even for alumni to wake up in the morning, and that there's a rumor that alcohol might have been consumed last night in areas near here. I always taught my Civil War class at UVA at 8 in the morning. There's some veterans of that class sprinkled around the room here. I did so to kind of weed out the people who weren't really serious. And it, it worked, believe me, but it seems that the same phenomenon is at work here this morning. The people who are serious are here. Uh, you can think very well of yourselves because you're in a category that the other people aren't in. They'll be the big losers and will lead much diminished lives by not being here this morning with all of us. I'm just back in Charlottesville after almost a year in Los Angeles. I've been at the Huntington Library for a year, and so I'm still getting used to a place that has what might be called weather. <laughs> and, and the humidity and the rain and the other things are reminding me uh, what most people actually deal with in life and which I haven't been dealing with much for the last year. When I was first asked whether I wanted to or whether I, I could speak here today, I thought about talking about turning points in the Civil War apart from Gettysburg. I thought that would be a nice thing to do, to remind people that there were things going on in the Civil War. I'm not expecting a call. This is my... I'm going to make sure we don't run long. Things were happening other than Gettysburg, and there are other moments at which the war turned one way or another. But I soon decided that leaving Gettysburg out of such a talk would be tantamount to offering a film noir festival and not running double indemnity or talking about the ten sure signs of the coming apocalypse and not talking about Twitter. <laughs> so I've decided this morning to talk about only Gettysburg. And I think everybody in this room probably knows the popular narrative attached to that fearsome bloodletting in Adams County, Pennsylvania on the first three days of July in 1863. They have a sense that Going into that battle, there was still a chance that there might be Confederate independence, but after the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia waged that fight, all signs pointed directly toward Appomattox. And clearly the war had been decided by then, and really most Confederates just got out their calendars, circled April 9, 1865, and started crossing off days one at a time. Because, of course, Gettysburg had decided the issues after Lee's retreat, it would only be a matter of time before United States armies would vanquish their opponents and restore the Republic. Now, that sounds very compelling. That narrative does. It sounds reasonable. After all, basic things about Gettysburg set it apart from all other campaigns and events in the Civil War. It was the biggest and bloodiest battle in our biggest and bloodiest war. It marked the deepest penetration into the United States by any major Confederate army, and in fact, no other principal Confederate army ever again set foot on United States soil after July 1863. Abraham Lincoln also set Gettysburg apart from all other Civil War engagements when he chose it as the place to give his eloquent benediction over the Union dead in November 1863. All these things help explain why Gettysburg has been far more studied than any other military event in American history. There was a bibliography published, it's been 15 years ago now on Gettysburg, that has 6,000 items 
uh, published about the battle. There are books on the first 15 minutes of the fighting in the railroad cut at Gettysburg. Big books, fat books, really big books. And the Gettysburg crowd are just waiting for an even bigger one. They want a 400-page book on the first 15 minutes rather than just a 300-page book. Uh, That number, since the bibliography was published, has gone up considerably. The sesquicentennial gave a boost to it. A number of titles came out during those years, including a big one by Alan Gelzo that covers the campaign as a whole. So I want to talk a little bit about how Gettysburg figures in popular perceptions of the Civil War, talk about some of the ways in which we can gauge how entrenched this idea of Gettysburg as the great turning point is in popular culture. I'm going to use several things from the sesquicentennial here. That's an easy way to get at it. The headline here, though, for this little part of my talk is that for most Americans who have any sense of turning points during the Civil War, Gettysburg dwarfs all others. Now, most Americans don't have any sense of anything uh, relating to our history. They can't place the Civil War in the 19th century. Uh, You can give them two or three centuries to choose from, and they've got about a one in three chance of getting the right one. Uh, for the Civil War and are always surprised when they find out that it in fact was before the Korean War and didn't involve any battleships. (laughs) But for people who do have a sense, some sense about the Civil War, even a very vague one, Gettysburg is a powerful image for them. Here are some things that came out during the sesquicentennial. The Washington Post had a special Civil War 150 edition, came out in April 2013, it called Gettysburg, quote, a massive smash-up that was arguably the pivotal moment of the great conflict that sits at the heart of American history. USA Today's 47-page special edition, July 2013, was titled, this is subtle, Gettysburg, Turning Point of the Civil War. You can contemplate that and kind of assume what what their stance is. It called it the epic battle that would decide the fate of a nation. National Geographic also had a special issue on the Civil War that included one of their great fold-out maps, a great National Geographic map. The map had text on it. The map was titled 1863, Turning Point of the Civil War, and the text said the Union began to gain the upper hand only in July 1863 with its victory at Gettysburg, the largest battle ever fought in North America. There's no mention of Vicksburg. Here, poor Vicksburg. Vicksburg took place at exactly the same time. Uh, U.S. Grant took John C. Pemberton's surrender of the Army defending Vicksburg on July 4th, the day that Lee retreated from the battlefield at Gettysburg. But Vicksburg languishes in the shadow, always, of Gettysburg, even though at the time, for people both in the United States and the Confederacy, Vicksburg was far more important than Gettysburg, had far greater impact on people behind the lines in both the United States and the Confederacy than Gettysburg did. Two more, and then I'll stop. Time magazine had a 122-page special edition on the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. It was titled, Gettysburg, colon, a day-by-day account of the greatest battle of the Civil War. And finally, even the BBC got in the act. It had a 98-page booklet The title of that was The American Civil War Story, and it pronounced Gettysburg, quote, a disastrous mistake by the South that marked the beginning of the end of the Confederacy. You've detected a theme here. It isn't just the print media, of course, that did this. Fiction, film, television, all of these buttress Gettysburg's preeminent turning point position. It's hard to overestimate the importance of the Killer Angels, Michael Schar's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel published in 1974 and of the cinematic translation of that novel uh, directed by Ron Maxwell entitled simply Gettysburg, which came out in 1993. Those two together have had a tremendous, uh, tremendous impact, largely through the character of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who is one of the key characters in the novel and the film. He's the college professor from Bowdoin College who lied so that he could get into the United States Army and then had a distinguished war record uh, during the war. I've always liked him. He's an academic who could actually function in the real world, which is something to think about. Really something to think about. Uh, So you've got to like Joshua Chamberlain on some level. He's also someone who lived in fear of missing a chance to tell people how great he was. 
and he didn't miss many chances to tell people how great he was, but Chamberlain is crucial in both the novel and the film. Early in both the novel and the film, Chamberlain is addressing soldiers in the 20th Maine and some other Maine soldiers, and he says the outcome of the war hangs in the balance as the armies march toward their collision at Gettysburg. I think if we lose this fight, observes the determined Chamberlain, we lose the war. It's a very powerful scene. It's had a great effect. Uh, it, it, the Killer Angels has, for, I've never quite understood this, but for many years, the only book on Gettysburg assigned to cadets at West Point was this novel. Shara's novel, The Killer Angels, is the only thing that soon-to-be officers in training at West Point read. Chamberlain's ascendancy in popular culture, he's clearly one of the two or three best-known names among United States officers from the Civil War. Grant would still be number one, Sherman would still be ahead of him, but after that, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is everywhere. And in the world of Civil War art, art in quotation marks, uh, if you're trying to gauge who's most popular by who's painted most often, Joshua Chamberlain is number one among all officers who wore blue uniforms in the Civil War. That, I can promise you, would come as a surprise to William Tecumseh Sherman or Philip Henry Sheridan and some of the other buckaroos uh, who fought for the United States during the Civil War. I was in, in Richmond on uh, just a few days ago and went through the new Tredegar Museum there and I went through, I always go through the, the gift shops to see what's being sold and what isn't. Only two Union officers are noted in the bookstore at Tredegar. One is U.S. Grant, there's a mug, and then there's Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. In very, you've got various options for Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain that you can get there. I'll say parenthetically that this is a wonderful way to get at the difference between history and memory. How Chamberlain has percolated up, how Gettysburg has become the great turning point. I'll talk about that later. The first time I went to Gettysburg, which was a half a century ago, I went, it's more than half a century ago. I'm going to take a moment and be heartbroken here, but I was 14 went from Colorado to Gettysburg. When I went to Little Round Top, the hero of Little Round Top was not Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. The hero of Little Round Top was Governor Kemble Warren. And one way to figure that out is who got statues on Little Round Top from the generation that lived the war? Well, here's one who didn't, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. There wasn't even a path to the 20th Maine Regimental Monument when I went there the first time. Not even a path, not a sign, not a path. No indication that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain existed. The booklet that the Park Service sold didn't even mention Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And now Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is the man. And it's an interesting example of how history, what actually happened, often doesn't bear much of a relationship to memory. How we remember what happened. This is one of the hardest things to get students to understand and one of the first things we need to have students understand is that in dealing with the past, you have to be able to differentiate between history and memory and understand the relationship between the two and understand that memory often trumps history because we act and interpret according to what we think happened, which often doesn't bear much resemblance to what actually did happen. Well, Ken Burns loved Killer Angels. So via Ken Burns... Uh, we get much more of this attention to Gettysburg. He devoted by far more attention to Gettysburg than any other battle. 45 minutes to Gettysburg in his long documentary, The Civil War. Vicksburg got 11 minutes uh, by way of comparison. And another battle, I'll pick one at random, Murfreesboro or Stones River, which was fought on December 31st, 1862 and January 2nd, 1863, uh, out in Tennessee, 30 miles from Nashville. That's the battle of all the battles in the whole war that had the highest percentage casualties for the two armies. It's the bloodiest battle of the war in that regard. Gets 45 seconds in Ken Burns' series. If you want to get attention, uh, think Gettysburg. Burns' documentary reached more than 40 million viewers, or so Ken Burns says, uh, the first time around. They watched at least part of it, I think. And it remains influential because it's replayed endlessly on PBS fundraising uh, efforts. Every time PBS wants money, I hear the Ashokan farewell and I have to run from the room <laughs> and compose myself. I love that. It's a beautiful song. I've just heard it too many times. 
over the years. And of course, there's a 25th anniversary edition of Burns' documentary that's available on Netflix all the time. So you can have Burns uh, 24-7 if you want it. It continues to have a great impact. Steven Spielberg's 2012 epic Lincoln, I'm in my little movie phase here, uh, also puts Gettysburg front and center, even though the film is set in January, for the most part, 1865, the film uses the Gettysburg Address to reinforce the importance of the battle. It opens with a scene in which common soldiers, one black, two white, recite the Gettysburg Address to Lincoln. This is right at the beginning of the film, as he watches troops prepare to depart for a campaign against Wilmington, North Carolina. This scene is comically preposterous. In fact, and this is true, I almost got up and left the theater when I saw this scene. I thought, if they're going to go down a road this stupefyingly wrong-headed, it's going to be agony to sit here for two hours. I hung in there, and I'm glad I did, because Daniel Day-Lewis is transcendent as Lincoln in that movie. I can't imagine any other actor would ever play him. But that scene, that scene is shall we say, somewhat removed from history. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was like a tree falling in the farthest reaches of Siberia. And it, nobody paid attention to it. Nobody did. No one. That's who. Nobody. <laughs> he gave an address? Really? Is that, how interesting that the president gave an address there. The idea that anybody, anybody, could have quoted random passages from it two years later it's still, it's almost worth a rant, but I'm going to spare you one. <laughs> what that passage in the film Lincoln does is it tells us everything about how modern Americans perceive Gettysburg as a great turning point and absolutely nothing about the wartime reality of 1863. Now, there was a second imperishable film about Lincoln that also debuted in 2012, as many of you know. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. <laughs> now that film carried Gettysburg's supremacy to apogee by treating the battle not only as the largest of the war, but the last of the war. The war actually ends with the Battle of Gettysburg in Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. And droves of rebels and vampires litter the battlefield uh, at Gettysburg. Those of you who've seen it uh, know this. Uh, Union victory... One victory, uh, slavery killed in one grand silver bullet laden crescendo uh, at the end of that movie. It's really, it's wonderful. If you haven't seen that movie, you really should watch it. It's, it's hilarious and very entertaining. And just as with Daniel Day-Lewis, they selected an English actor to play Lincoln in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. I've decided over the years that American actors are incapable of playing Americans from other eras. Go to England, you can get people who actually can do plausible Americans from the 19th century. Uh, Al Pacino in the 19th century? I don't think so. Uh, and he's from my generation. I know there are younger people in here. My life didn't start, I didn't stop with Al Pacino, but the point is American actors are hopeless. They're hopeless with English accents, they're hopeless with 19th century American accents. And now I'm going to move on. <laughs> These recent examples of Gettysburg's preeminence, of course, owe much to earlier examples as well. I'm just going to mention two here, and one that you have to mention when you're dealing with the Civil War is Margaret Mitchell's... I'm checking. Okay, we're just absolutely fine. Is Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, which appeared in 1936, and then the film, or the film, as the Irish would say, version of it that came out three years later in 1939. Those two things have had a greater impact on how Americans understand the Civil War than any other single factor in my opinion, far more influenced than everything people such as I have written and blathered about over the years. Gone with the Wind's just more important. Uh, enormous numbers of people read and saw it. They saw it in successive generations. It was re-released and re-released and re-released over the years. Because Ted Turner loves it, it's still on television all the time. Gone with the Wind has had an immense influence, less among young people now than in the past, but over the long arc, it has been incredibly important. And although it's set in Georgia 
and it features the operations of Sherman's Union armies in 1864, it treats Gettysburg as the great turning point of the war. Ashley Wilkes is the person who conveys this impression. Ashley Wilkes addresses the issue when he's home on furlough from Lee's army at Christmas in 1863 in the film. He says this, We shall need all our prayers now the end is coming. That's Leslie Howard, uh, tells Vivian Lee's Scarlet with his usual hangdog look and feeble attempt at a credible southern accent. The end, she asks, the end of the war, he intones wearily, and the end of our world, Scarlet. Ashley's world is always ending, as you know in that movie. He mopes around, rich guy moping around about everything ending. It's Gettysburg that persuaded Ashley the Confederacy couldn't win. Something underscored by an earlier scene in the film that shows people of Atlanta crowding around a newspaper office to read uh, newspapers that list the dead and wounded at Gettysburg. In real time, the battle's actually occurring and they're posting these at the same time. It is a very early example of how social media worked, I guess. Way ahead of their time in Atlanta. Way, way ahead of their time. There's also in the film, the film pauses and puts an expository text on the screen uh, just in case there are some viewers who are too dim to grasp the portent of what's going on. And this text reads, quote, hushed and grim, Atlanta turned painful eyes toward the faraway little town of Gettysburg. And a page of history waited for three days while two nations came to death grips on the farmlands of Pennsylvania. That's while the farmlands at Pennsylvania have soldiers on them. That's happening. It's amazing news passage at that time. Well, news about Gettysburg and tallies of the dead and wounded obviously would not have reached Atlanta so quickly. <laughs> there's, there's no chance. But the device works very well in reminding audiences about Gettysburg's role in foreclosing chances for Confederate independence. The last thing I will mention as an earlier influence is, is William Faulkner, who spoke to the sense of Gettysburg as a grand turning point in his 1948 novel, Intruder in the Dust. There's someone in this very room who's been in the land of Faulkner a lot lately, may have even visited Faulkner's house. I'm not going to embarrass this person by making her stand up and take a bow, uh, but she's been there. Uh, this passage from Intruder in the Dust has been quoted endlessly. And the passage itself, as with so many of Faulkner's sentences and paragraphs, it's, it itself can seem endless. But I'm going to quote here. And this is all one sentence. I'll give you a heads up. Everything I'm reading now is from one sentence. Uh, for every southern boy, and Faulkner meant every white southern boy, 14 years old, not once but wherever he wants it, wrote Faulkner of the time just before the Confederates stepped off, on the Pickett-Pettigrew assault. There is that instance when it's still not yet 2 o'clock on the afternoon of July in 1863. The brigades are in position behind the rail fence. The guns are laid and ready in the woods and the furled flags are already loosened to break out. And Pickett himself with his long oiled ringlets has his hat in one hand probably and his sword in the other and looking up the hill and waiting for Longstreet to give the word and it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even begun yet. You can take a breath now. It's all one sentence. That moment doesn't need even a 14-year-old boy, continued Faulkner as he set up the battle as a decisive moment in the war, to think this time, maybe this time, with all this much to lose and all this much to gain, Pennsylvania, Maryland, the world, the Golden Dome of Washington itself, to crown with desperate and unbelievable victory the desperate gamble the cast made two years ago. That passage from Intruder in the Dust, as well as anything, gets at Gettysburg is the great tipping point. Until that moment, anything's possible. After the Pickett-Pettigrew assault, it's over. It's only a matter of time. I work with high school teachers every summer. We're, we meet in June. They'll be gathering here, 40 or 45 of them, at, uh, in two weeks to spend a week talking about the Civil War. And they all tell me that on the state history tests, there is a question. What was the turning point of the Civil War? And there is one answer. Gettysburg. 
is the answer on the state test. Uh, both private schools and public schools uh, get that message, they tell me. The sesquicentennial postage stamp that featured Gettysburg, this was in 2013, was printed on a sheet that also had a Vicksburg stamp on it. Vicksburg and Gettysburg. Here's the text. Gettysburg has often been called the high watermark of the rebellion. And there you go. Again, poor Vicksburg, always in Gettysburg's long shadow. More visitors go to Gettysburg than any other National Park Service site. More visitors actually interested in the Civil War. I'm sure more go to Kennesaw Mountain outside Atlanta, which is kind of a municipal recreational park now. But for people interested in the Civil War, Gettysburg is by far number one. And now I will officially stop. I, can, I sense weariness in the audience that there is a lot of attention to Gettysburg in our popular culture. It's always useful to compare our perception about the past with what people at the time thought. It's a nice check on whether we're getting things right or maybe we're straying a little off the path. Look at what people said at the time to try to gauge what was going on. I'm going to pause and tie my shoelace so that I don't trip, which would be embarrassing. He's back. Here's the, here is the headline from any look at contemporary opinion. Very few people at the time considered Gettysburg a great turning point that presaged United States victory. In the summer of 1864, when Union prospects reached Nadir, the darkest moment of the war, the darkest, was from late June for the United States, was from late June to late August 1864. That is the closest the United States came to saying enough, enough. It's costing us too much in human and material resources. Let the damned rebels go. That's the key to Confederate victory. There's this notion that the Confederacy was doomed to lose. Of course, the United States wanted to add more of everything. This is a lost cause notion, a way afterward to pretend the Confederacy couldn't have won. That's absolutely not right. The Confederacy couldn't defeat the United States absolutely, but it didn't need to. These are two democratic republics at war. What the Confederacy has to do is convince a majority of the civilian population of the United States that it isn't worth the effort. And that's when the war ends. And the closest the Confederacy came to doing that was in the blood-soaked summer of 1864, one year after Gettysburg. If we had gone to people in Vermont or Ohio in early August 1864 and said, you know, things look bad, I know, but remember, Gettysburg was the turning point. Everything is going to turn out right. They would have said, well, what are you talking about? Gettysburg was a year ago. It has nothing to do with what's going on now. I'm going to pick a few people to get at this point of opinion then, and let's start with somebody at random, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's in Washington. He sends congratulations to George Gordon Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, thanks him profusely for the victory at Gettysburg. He writes this on July 14th in a letter that he did not send to Meade, but he made sure that General-in-Chief Henry Halleck told Meade what was in the letter. So the message is delivered even though the letter isn't. So congratulations on the victory, General Meade, but because you did not pursue the rebels, you let them get back across the Potomac River safely. That means, and I'll quote Lincoln directly, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. In Lincoln was absolutely crestfallen because of what he saw as a great lost opportunity at Gettysburg. Gettysburg doesn't point the way to the end of the war. Gettysburg marks a point at which that could have happened, but it didn't happen. And Meade got the message. Another northern witness I'll use is a man named George Templeton Strong, who kept one of the great diaries in United States history. It was published in the 1950s in four thick volumes. Strong was a, a Republican lawyer in New York, very observant, wrote about everything. He's a wonderful witness that pulls us into the mid-19th century and lets us see what people are talking about and what they're thinking. Strong, early on, his first uh, <clears throat> entry was on July 6th. 
The rebels are hunted out of the north. Their best army is routed, and the charm of Robert E. Lee's invincibility is broken. He's very upbeat, and, and it's impossible to overstate how important Lee is, both in the Confederacy and in the United States, as a rallying symbol in the Confederacy and as a kind of bugaboo in the United States. And that's because no other rebel general ever wins any battles. So they focus on Lee. He's the one that they need to deal with. So Strong is up on July 6th. But like Lincoln, he changed his mind as day after day went by and it was clear that the Army of the Potomac had not pushed the Army of Northern Virginia and tried to deliver a real knockout blow. On August 8th, he summed up. Newspapers brag far too loudly about our having broken the backbone of the rebellion. The vertebrae of southern treason still cohere as we may yet learn to our terrible cost, especially if Lee reinforces himself and the debris, with the debris of rebellion from the southwest, and he goes on to lament that Meade let him get away. That is the sense. It's a victory, but a wasted victory on the part of the United States. What about among Confederates? I'll pick again someone at random, Lee. Now, Lee wasn't confused about Gettysburg. He knew it was a defeat. He knew he had been defeated at Gettysburg. And in the short term, he pouted about it. He read some negative uh, comments about himself in newspapers in Charleston and elsewhere, and he very theatrically wrote to Jefferson Davis and basically said, you know, people don't love me anymore, and if they don't love me, I can't be the general, so I think I'll just step aside and you can get somebody else. And Jefferson Davis wrote back and said, no, you're wonderful, you're really wonderful, you're awesomely wonderful, as we would say now, and there's no one else like you, so you have to stay there. And, and then Lee said, okay, uh, I'll stay here. He'd, he'd had his little moment of crisis, and now he was out of it. As he thought more about the campaign, he came to view it as a very mixed campaign. <clears throat> he reckoned that the logistical dimension of the campaign, and that was the principal reason he went north, never planned to capture Washington or anything, he went north to pull supplies out of the rich Cumberland Valley and give a respite from the war to the agricultural regions of northern Virginia. He reckoned that a success. He pulled enough out of Pennsylvania to subsist his army for six weeks. That might not sound like much. Six weeks is a long time. His army, if we want to look at it this way, is the second largest city in the Confederacy. New Orleans has 160,000 people. Lee's army has 60 to 75,000. He had, he pulled enough out of Pennsylvania to feed his army for six weeks. Cattle, swine, sheep, hay, grain. The army in Northern Virginia just siphoned things out of Southern Pennsylvania. And he reckoned that a success. He also made the point, and this is something most people never pay attention to, he said if we hadn't gone to Gettysburg we would have fought big battles somewhere and I would have had heavy casualties anyway. It's not as if there wouldn't have been any battle, it just would have been in a different place. And he believed that he had dealt a real blow to the Army of the Potomac. He put it this way, we did whip them at Gettysburg and it will be seen, for whip them in a sense that inflict great damage, it will be seen in the next six months that that army, he underlined that, will be as quiet as a sucking dove. He predicted that well, six months, the next big battle in the Eastern Theater isn't six months later, next big battle in the Eastern Theater is ten months later. It's not until the armies collide on the first day of the Battle of the Wilderness on May 5th, 1864, right there where Route 20 runs into Route 3, uh, that's where the next big battle was. There's no other period in the war when there's such a long space between big battles except the very early one between First Bull Run and the Seven Days. So Lee's prediction is even worse than Lee's prediction. It's more uh, than six months. It's ten. Now many in the Confederacy lamented the high casualties and some criticized Lee's generalship. But most concluded that the foray into Pennsylvania and subsequent retreat represented only a temporary setback with few, if any, long-term consequences. The remarkable thing, they typically drew a sharp distinction between Gettysburg and Vicksburg. The early reporting on Gettysburg in the Confederacy focused on the first day, which was a great Confederate tactical victory, as many of you know. It's one of the biggest victories Lee had in the whole war on the first day. And news of Gettysburg was quickly overshadowed by news about the loss of Vicksburg. Vicksburg was an unequivocal disaster for Confederates. You lost an entire army. You lost the last little stretch of the Mississippi River that the Confederacy had controlled. It's unequivocal. 
it's a disaster. Uh, what happened at Gettysburg is much more complicated. And I'll quote a woman named Catherine Ann Devereux Edmonston on this point. She's my favorite woman diarist from the Confederacy. She lived in eastern North Carolina. Uh, the book, it's been published. It's called Journal of a Secesh Lady. It's a great, thick thing. It's 700 pages long. It's, it's much better than... than uh, Diary from Dixie, which isn't really a diary from Mary Chestnut. It's the best. If you want a women's account, you should get it. Well, Kate Edmonston early on was chastened, but later as she read northern accounts of how unhappy people in the north were about the failure to smash Lee's army, she reached her final conclusion. And she said, General Lee's army is said to be in fine condition in Virginia. Meade is crossing the Potomac in pursuit. She put in quotation marks. The North much exasperated against him for allowing Lee to escape. That's a very common attitude. I'm going to conclude now with my own thoughts about, and you already know what my answer to this is, was Gettysburg a great turning point? And of course I don't think it was. I've got a long association with Gettysburg. I've been going there for most of my life. I've edited five books relating to Gettysburg. I don't even know how many tours I've taken at Gettysburg. More than 100, I'm sure, led Students from Penn State, students from UVA. I'll be there this fall with students from the Darden School. Lots of groups of adults, junior officers from the Marine Corps and from the United States Army. I've walked every part of Gettysburg over the years. It's a wonderful classroom to deal with what happened on the ground and to deal with memory, to use the monuments at Gettysburg. There are 1,500 of them to deal with and to use their inscriptions to talk about how Americans chose to remember the war. And one of my themes always is that Gettysburg wasn't a great turning point. Now, of course it was bloody. Lee lost a third of all his general officers, 25 to 28,000 men. The Army of the Potomac lost between 20 and 22,000 men. Uh, Other outcomes, Lincoln decided that George Gordon Meade wasn't going to win the war for him. Whatever Meade could do, he was not going to be the man to win the war for the United States. It did hurt long-term morale in North Carolina. North Carolina units at Gettysburg suffered unbelievable casualties, far heavier than any other state in the Army. And these terrible casualties fueled the anti-war sentiment in North Carolina that manifested itself in a number of ways over the next year and a half. But, and I find this remarkable, Lee's reputation emerged almost completely unscathed. I I cannot explain this. I, I don't know how to explain it. Both in the United States and the Confederacy. You read Confederate accounts in the spring of 1864 all across the Confederacy and they include some version of we have faith in General Lee who's never lost a battle and never will. What? <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting, uh, and I cannot explain it. Uh, there's not another general on either side who had that kind of Teflon character when it came to how people judged him after long campaigns. And the strategic situation didn't change at all. Before the Gettysburg campaign, the armies were along the Rappahannock River frontier. Lee left the vicinity of Culpeper to begin the Gettysburg campaign. Lee returned to the vicinity of Culpeper. The army spent the winter of 1863-1864 stretched along the valley of the Rapidan near Orange and Culpeper, as you know, to begin the next phase of fighting on the battlegrounds near Fredericksburg. Absolutely no change in the strategic situation in that regard. No change in the way that either side looked at Lee and the Army of North Virginia. Well, why? Okay, if that's true... Why has it become so prominent? And I th- I'm going to run through factors very quickly. One is that former Confederates obsessed about Gettysburg and arguing about who was at fault for losing Gettysburg. They viewed Gettysburg as the great turning point of the war, and they came to blame James Longstreet for undermining Lee, costing Lee the victory, and by extension, the Confederacy independence. They wrote incessantly about it through the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s. They came up with two reasons why the Confederacy didn't win the war. The lost cause did. They're utterly irreconcilable, but nonetheless, they had two. Number one, we never could have won. The Yankees had too much of everything. Go to the cemetery here at the University of Virginia, look on the Confederate monument there, and the inscription says, fate denied them victory. If fate doesn't think you should win, here's the news. You're not going to win. 
And that is one of the explanations for Confederate defeat. But the other one is Longstreet undid Lee at Gettysburg. Gettysburg was a great moment. Gettysburg was the high water mark of the Confederacy. Even as a kid, I thought that seemed odd. Why isn't it the low water mark of the Confederacy? It's a big defeat. They retreat, but it's the high water mark of the Confederacy. I think that had tremendous impact, that notion. It works its way into Gone with the Wind. Uh, it works its way into the whole notion that the Confederacy never could have won, which is completely ahistorical. There's a perfect example of a relatively weaker opponent defeating a relatively stronger opponent that everybody at the time talked about, and that is the American Revolution, when the colonies defeated Imperial Britain in a completely one-sided struggle. I think that has had great influence. It's also true that presidents like to go to Gettysburg. Woodrow Wilson went on the 50th anniversary in 1913. FDR went on the 75th anniversary in 1938. And they, and they always give reconciliationist speeches when they go. They tamp down sectional, uh, any kind of, of sectional antipathy, antipathy, say we were all Americans, everyone was brave. There were, there were veterans around at both of those speeches. Uh, so that has had an impact. Veterans had reunions at Gettysburg. They chose Gettysburg as the place to have a lot of their reunions and their famous pictures of the old men shaking hands across the wall on Cemetery Ridge and so forth. It's also the most accessible site to lots of people in the north, what would have been called the north then, and it becomes a huge tourist attraction. And it remains a huge tourist attraction. And it's a wonderful place to, where you can see a mixture of history and unbelievable uh, I don't even know how to put it. It's tourist tchotchkes run amok uh, at, at Gettysburg. You can buy anything at Gettysburg, any, no matter how. You can buy a replica of Dan Sickles' shattered leg bones at Gettysburg in a little dome, and there they are, cast in rubber or whatever they're cast in. And who wouldn't want Dan Sickles' shattered leg bones? You could be the only person on your street with that. It could be a feature when you had friends over. You end up with things like the Land of Little Horses at Gettysburg, Mr. Ed's Elephant Farm at Gettysburg. I mean, sure, there's a battle there, but really, Mr. Ed's Elephant Farm? There's no other place like that. They built the National Tower there, this unbelievably obscene, looks like the superstructure of a battleship, right in the middle of the battlefield. That's a nice touch. Uh, they took that down eventually. But all of this, this incredible effort to make money at Gettysburg, special rates from railroads to go to Gettysburg. They had a little trolley that went all around the battlefields. You could ride the trolley out to Devil's Den. And of course, that really helps you get yourself in the mood of the battle as the trolley goes dinging by. I won't keep going on this. <laughs> Tourism has helped. As I said earlier, the fact that we know things now that they didn't know then contributes to our thinking it was more important. The biggest battle, the last one in the United States, the Gettysburg Address, and the Gettysburg Address is hugely important uh, from the end of the war down to the present. Generations of school children had to learn it for many years. They would, I mean, it's easy to learn. It's only, it only took Lincoln two minutes to give it. It's something you can actually memorize, and untold millions of tourists have seen it at the Lincoln Memorial, of course. I love the Lincoln Memorial. It's incredible. It's, it's the most visited part of the mall, and there you walk in, and there's the Gettysburg Address in the second inaugural on one wall and the other wall, and it, there are amazing speeches. Gettysburg Address isn't the greatest speech. The second inaugural is the greatest speech by far that any president has ever given, but the Gettysburg Address is good, and the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, Lincoln didn't have a bunch of smart young aides who wrote these talks for him. He wrote them. What a thought. Uh, we haven't had a president in a long time, I think, who wrote more than five words in a row. I mean a long time. A long time. Very long time. I worked at the LBJ Library for 10 years when I was young. There were no jobs, no teaching jobs then. And I don't think Lyndon Johnson ever wrote nine words in a row. I mean, he gave a lot of speeches, but he didn't write any of them. Presidents don't write anything now. Lincoln wrote these. Pretty amazing. I have no doubt, it's almost over, 
that Gettysburg will continue to be treated as the great turning point of the Civil War. I see nothing that will change that. Certainly nothing that anyone such as myself could do uh, to change that, uh, despite the fact that on the merits, historical evidence certainly doesn't support that. But uh, at some level, I find it reassuring that at least people know something about the Civil War, even if it's wrong. Uh, they know. I tell the teachers, the teachers say, well, if you don't think Gettysburg, what should, what should we tell our students to do about that exam? I said, tell them to write Gettysburg down. And then tell them this is a lesson. You know it's wrong, but you know it's necessary in order to achieve another goal. And just, and they'll know it and everyone else won't know it, but life, sometimes, there are students in this very room who heard me say this in class, life isn't fair. Students will say, well, that's not fair. That's correct. That's not fair. <laughs> and although you've been told that all the sharp edges can be shaved off life and no one should ever say anything that bothers you and you should never feel uncomfortable, that is, that's fine, except in the real world. Well, the real world has a way of kind of crunching and crushing you, and you need to deal with that, and it's not fair. You may know somebody who's adult and a creep and gets ahead, and you're neither adult nor a creep, and you don't get ahead just accept it, that life isn't fair. You'll lead a much happier life if you don't fight that. You're, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's correct. Now think about something important. Okay, we have about 11 minutes. So if anybody has a question or a comment, raise your hand. I'll repeat the question or you can get a mic. Yes. A question, not a statement. What is What's, there is no one turning point. Atlanta is really important. Atlanta and the Shenandoah Valley in 1864 re-elect Lincoln and the Republicans, which means emancipation stays on the table, which means war will be pushed through to victory. I think the battle that had the single greatest impact on the overall direction of the war was the Seven Days in 1862, which brought Lee to the fore. Take Lee out of the picture, the war is over in 1862. Uh, in my view. That's a counterfactual, but I absolutely believe it. Joseph Johnston was in charge of the Confederate Army. Joseph Johnston... Anyway, Lee's coming to the fore. I don't want to beat up on Johnston. Um, Joseph Johnston was the perfect opponent for George B. McClellan. And they both woke up. McClellan woke up and thought, I don't want to advance. That would require movement. And Joseph Johnston woke up and said, God, which way shall I retreat? I have so many options, I just love a good retreat. And so they go. Lee was a different kettle of fish, and when Lee came to the fore and McClellan failed to take Richmond, the U.S. was this close to winning the war in late June 1862. Lee's ascendancy meant the war was going to continue. That meant it was going to get much more all-encompassing. Later that same month, both Congress and Lincoln decided to push for emancipation. The seven days puts emancipation on the table in a serious way for the United States. If McClellan had taken Richmond in 62, the United States would have won the war. Emancipation was not yet really on the table. So it's a hugely important battle. Yes? What should Lee have done at Gettysburg? What should Lee have done at Gettysburg? Well, I, I mean, as Lee said after the battle, even as dull a fellow as I wouldn't have ordered the picket assault if I knew it wasn't going to work. Some people actually write, well, he knew that would fail. Really? Really. He woke up in the morning and thought, I've got a good idea. I'm going to launch an assault that I know will fail, but at least it will kill a lot of my soldiers. No. He, he, thought, he thought that it would work. I think what he should have done is after the first day's great victory, hunker down on Seminary Ridge and make the Federals attack him. That's what I would have done. There you go. I don't know anything, but that's what I would... That's what Porter Alexander would have done, who's the smartest of the Confederates who wrote about the war afterward by a very wide margin. Lee believed he... People say, why would he do that? Why would he do that? He said why he did it. He said it in a letter to his wife and a letter to Jefferson Davis within a month of the battle. And what he said was, I asked too much of my infantry. He believed his infantry could do anything. And I, because they had done it repeatedly on other battlefields. They'd done it the seven days. They'd done it at Second Bull Run. They had done it at Chancellorsville against huge odds. He believed his infantry could do anything. And I think the epiphany came at Chancellorsville on May the 3rd 
when the two wings of Lee's army fought their way together and Hooker's army began to retreat to the Rappahannock River and Lee rode into the midst of his infantry there and there was this enormous outpouring of emotion at about between 9 and 10 o'clock on the morning of May 3rd. I think they decided, both Lee and his men, that they basically could do anything. The men, anything Lee asked them to do, Lee, anything he asked them to do. And I think that's why he did what he did at Gettysburg. And he was wrong. Yes. Gary, you mentioned the uh, importance of public uh, in the north, of the public resolve. Um, in addition to the uh, change of policy where they, in 63, when uh, the North decided to bring mail to people's homes to squelch the um, discord of the war, um, were there any other um, tools that the North used to either manipulate or control public opinion? Of course, both sides did. The uh the Lincoln administration shut down Democratic newspapers that published things it didn't like. It arrested people. It, it arrested people without giving them recourse to habeas corpus. So did the Confederate national government. Uh, both governments did things that would have been absolutely unthinkable before the Civil War. Unthinkable. Oh, why do, uh, the, the first graduated income tax came from the Civil War. The United States had, government had never taxed people that way. Never done anything to people. The government was tiny before the Civil War. The, the government became much more expansive and intrusive during the war. The United States government did, but not as big as the Confederate government did. The most intrusive central government by far in American history until deep into the 20th century was the Confederate government, which did things that it believed it had to do to keep a war going against the odds. It was the first government that conscripted people. Central government had never forced anyone into military service in American history. The idea was that as citizens in a republic, if there's a crisis, you offer your service. That's, that's part of the deal. You get things from the government, you give things back to the republic. The Confederacy in the spring of 62 said, that's nice, but we're going to force you in if you don't volunteer. The United States followed a year later. So both governments do, but both, got, both Lincoln and Davis suspended habeas corpus. Both governments did all kinds of things. Uh, the, the Federals in the election of 1864. If you were a Democrat in the, uh, in the election of 1864, in many places you had a lot harder time voting than if you were a Republican in the election of 1864. Anyway, both governments did many things. Yes? About what year or how long after the war did the aura of the battle start to develop? Yeah, when did, the, well, uh, when did Gettysburg be begin to percolate up? It really began in the 1870s. And the, the debates among the Lost Cause writers really got going right after Robert E. Lee died. I mean, Lee didn't want anything to do with that. So they waited. As soon as he was dead in October of 1870, then they really began to go after one another. And published in places such as the Southern Historical Society papers and elsewhere, and that literature really develops in the 1870s and then continues through the rest of the century and on into the 20th century. Yes? How much credence do you give to stuff like the Jeb Stewart wandering off and yeah. not having Jackson and that kind of thing? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I almost made it. I don't think I've ever given a talk where somebody didn't ask me some version of what if Stonewall Jackson had been at Gettysburg, and you didn't do that. So I'm not saying you did. If Jackson had been at Gettysburg, he probably would have been more aggressive on July 1st. Of course, in reality, if he'd been at Gettysburg, he would have been a putrefying corpse and would have made no, he'd been dead for two months. He wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever uh, if he had been there then. I think it might have, I, I mean, who knows? We can, that's, that's unanswerable. He was always aggressive. Richard Ewell was less aggressive than Stonewall Jackson would have been. And I've forgotten the first half of your question, which was? Oh, Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart, I got interested in the Civil War because of Jeb Stewart, but there's no way to dress Jeb Stewart's behavior in Gettysburg up. Jeb Stewart didn't do his job, period. Now, you can write long books pretending he did, which people have, 
Uh, and you can even buy and read those books, which maybe you can do, but here's a hint of what I think might be a better course. Don't do it! I mean, Jeb Stewart knew he had a job. What is Jeb Stewart's job? What does cavalry do during the Civil War? We know what it doesn't do. It doesn't fight. It is not a fighting arm during the Civil War because infantrymen armed with rifle muskets kill the horses before the cavalry can get anywhere near them. They fight dismounted sometimes for a little while. They fight for an hour at Gettysburg. You see the film Gettysburg, it seems like the greatest battle since Waterloo, Buford's men. Uh, It actually lasted about an hour, and then they got out of the way, and the actual soldiers came, the infantry. Cavalry screens the army, and it gathers information regarding the position and activities of the other army. That's what it does. Jeb Stuart knew that. Jeb Stuart didn't do that in the Gettysburg campaign. In my view, end of discussion. Didn't do his job. And there were people in Lee's headquarters who wanted to court-martial Jeb Stuart because of Gettysburg. Really wanted to. Uh, Lee didn't do that. What's he going to do? Stuart's a great cavalry officer. That's what Stonewall Jackson would do. Arrest somebody who's really good over something. And then Lee didn't do that. He was more of an adult uh, when it came to dealing with what what now we would call, I don't know, what what used to be called personnel. Uh, Now it's called human resources. Why use one word when you can use two? But anyway, I think that Stuart didn't do his job. Did not do his job. Gary, we have a question over here. Okay. Right here. There you are. I, I know it's complex, but what is your take on the Longstreet and Lee controversy? You know, can you summarize what your sure. position? Yeah. The, the loss caused people accused Longstreet of things he didn't do. They said there was a sunrise attack order on July 2nd, a complete lie. There was not. But, but, did Long, was Longstreet a good subordinate at Gettysburg? In my view, absolutely not. He was not. Uh, and I admire Longstreet. He was a very good corps commander. He was a good soldier. He knew what Lee wanted to have done, and he dragged his feet. And he, he dragged his feet on July 2nd. He took a lot longer to get where he was supposed to be to launch the assaults than he should have taken. I mean, it's a command relationship. I, I teach a course at the Darden School on leadership lessons from Gettysburg, and Lee and Longstreet are a great one. And the question is, what is a subordinate's role? Lee asked Longstreet's opinion. Longstreet gave his opinion, Lee had a different opinion, and Lee said, okay, thank you for your opinion, but this is mine and we're going to do what I want to do. And now a subordinate has three options at that point. You either in very good faith carry out your superior's orders, even though you don't agree with them, or you resign, which Longstreet could have done. An officer can do that, an enlisted person can't, of course. You say, I just can't do this, I'm going to resign. Or you can do what Longstreet did and carry it out in a kind of way. I think that's the worst of those options, and that's what he did. So I don't think he was a good subordinate at Gettysburg. I think he was a very good soldier, not a good subordinate at Gettysburg. And yep. not a mo- this nonsense about he, how he was a modern soldier and Lee was an old-fashioned soldier. Please, give me a break. Longstreet ordered some of the most ill-planned ass- assaults of the war at Fort Sanders outside uh, Knoxville in late, when he was in independent command in 1863. Uh, you've talked a great deal about General uh, Lee. He's kind of important at Gettysburg. <laughs> well, no, that's, I can't do that in two minutes, but I think that I think there's a major difference between... I think basically the resources of command were almost identical in the Civil War. And that's because it's the first war run by West Pointers. There are people closing in from every side, which makes me think that we're almost to the end. Uh, They went to West Point. They took the same classes from the same professors. They fought in Mexico, either under Winfield Scott or under Zachary Taylor. They bring the same body of knowledge to work. Here's the heartbreaking thing. Some people are better than other people at things. And, and so you, but as a pool, they're about the same. Having said that, the United States found four soldiers who could command armies pretty well. The United States, uh, the Confederates found one. Jefferson Davis wrote a, a really important letter to his brother Joseph after Chancellorsville where he makes clear that, okay, I've got Lee. We need a lot more. We don't have any other ones. He's the only one we have. The United States had Grant, He was a great general. Sherman, who became a really good general because of Grant, complete failure without Grant. Grant made Sherman possible. 
Philip Sheridan and George Thomas also did well as army commanders, but they enjoyed such edges of numbers and situations, it's hard to tell what they would have done against somebody kind of their own size. But nonetheless, the U.S. came up with four, Confederacy came up with one, and if you only have one, it's a problem if you have more than one army, uh, which the Confederacy did. Are we finished? We're, we're finished. Well, Thank you. We are... <laughs> I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Uh, I don't know about you. I've never uh, watched Gone with the Wind in one sitting, but I might have to do so now. Watch it in two. I guess so. But uh, we want to thank Gary Gallagher for coming. And on behalf of Lifetime Learning, the Alumni Association, here's a little gift. And uh, thank you very much. Again, and questions, I'm sure you might follow them out.